0: If you're glad the person beside you is here this morning, say amen. (laughs) Glad you're all here this morning. We've had a great time over the Advent series and the Advent activities. Thank you for everyone that worked so hard to get everything accomplished. Our Christmas Eve service was a, a great time together. I also want to celebrate Prairie Crossing. Prairie Crossing decided to do their own Christmas Eve service this year, and they had over 100 in attendance. That's worth celebrating. Let me hear your hands. That's great. That's great. So we're in this in-between week of respite. One of the board members gave me a book. Title. It's about the value of rest. And I said, I will, I will read it when I'm not so busy. <laughs> so this is that respite week. There are no services at church tonight. Nothing going on in the building nothing going on here on wednesday so make sure that you take time to enjoy family and whatever breaks you get to take make the most of those this is your last opportunity people will ask this is your last opportunity at church to give in 2019 sowing into the harvest for 2020 this is your last chance Um, someone will call uh, you know late on the 31st and they have to get their uh, last tax deduction in Uh, just do it today Let's do it today If you don't know how much you need to give just put in a blank check We'll We'll evaluate that for you and make sure that you're covered when tax time comes But appreciate your faithfulness. I don't I don't know about you, but there's all this worry. We're going to lose Tax deduction for charitable giving and I don't give for a tax deduction I give because it's right Because I believe in the kingdom And I hope the deduction doesn't go away, but I believe in the kingdom and appreciate your faithfulness and generosity. I read an old story about um, a man, strong man, at a circus sideshow who would demonstrate his feats of strength. And toward the end of the performance, he would take a lemon and with one hand squeeze it and squeeze all the juice out. Then he would make an offer to the audience. If anyone could come up and squeeze any more juice out of that lemon, he'd give them $200. Elderly lady got up, frail looking, walked to the front, and he just kind of snickered as she took that lemon out of his hand, began to squeeze it, and squeezed out another teaspoon of lemon juice. He gave her the $200 and said, how were you able to do that? She said, well, I've had a lot of practice. I'm a church treasurer. (laughs) Sometimes it's getting blood out of a turnip, it's that last bit of lemon juice But thank you that we don't have to squeeze the lemons that tight Thank you for being generous, helping us invest in the kingdom And your faithful giving is greatly appreciated Um, I have a video that I want you to watch But before we watch the video, I'm going to have to set it up a little bit Or it won't make any sense at all The uh, title of my message is, Can We Just Get Rid of Herod? You know, we don't use him anyway. You ever have things in your cabinet, you know, in the closet somewhere, you think, we don't use these anyway, we should just throw them away? Now, if you're a hoarder, that wouldn't cross your mind, but how many of you think, well, and then when you throw it away, you need it the next day? Should we just get rid of Herod? He doesn't fit in our Christmas stories. We don't include him, and Herod doesn't fit in our lives. Well, in researching a little bit, studying a little bit about Herod, I discovered, didn't know this, that there's a Christmas carol dedicated to Herod called the Coventry Carol. Have any of you heard of the Coventry Carol? Anybody heard of that? One, two, three. The video in a moment will be the Coventry Carol sung by the U.S. Army uh, Band Chorus. And you'll hear them perform that song. It's a 16th century carol, Originating from Coventry, England. It was traditionally performed during the uh, Coventry mystery plays, where medieval plays were offered telling New Testament stories, including that of the Nativity. One of the few surviving plays is entitled The Pageant of the Sherman and Tailors, and it depicts the Nativity from Matthew chapter 2, from the Annunciation to the Massacre of the Innocents. And the lyrics describe Herod's harrowing order, the news of the new birth, and then ends with the massacre of the innocents. Wolverhampton University's Daisy Black describes it this way. Medieval drama was in the business of staging what was considered the entire history of the world represented in Scripture from creation to doomsday, unlike our modern nativity plays, which tend to safely end with the visit of the magi. They carried on to the massacre, showing the very human cost of Christ's birth. While you give to this depressing song, (laughs) um, would you give generously and then listen to the lyrics as the ushers come? Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of investing in your kingdom work. We do so with thankful, grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Lurie,
0: How many of you would agree with me that's a depressing song? (laughs) So, does the story of Herod have any value? I thought it was safe to talk about Herod because we're no longer officially in the Christmas season and I didn't want to have to enter the witness protection program with this message. And we're in that Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, time to contemplate and think a bit about where we've been as we ponder where we'll be going. What value, if any, does Herod have? We don't use him. Should we eliminate him from the story? Do we eliminate him from our lives? Well, if there was no value to the Herod story, it wouldn't be included in Scripture. So it's included in Scripture to give authenticity to the story and to demonstrate the fulfillment of Scripture... But I still think there's got to be something more than that for us to be able to draw benefit from it. So let's explore for a little bit what value Herod has, why we can't just get rid of him. But before I do, I want to describe to you who Herod really was. What kind of person was he? At this time in history, Herod was a bitter old man in the final years of his 41-year reign, fully capable of engaging the atrocities that Matthew describes. During the course of his reign, Herod had at least nine wives and 14 children, probably more, but daughters' births were not always recorded. He put one of his wives, Mariamne I, on trial for adultery. The chief witness was her mother, who testified under the threat of death that her daughter was guilty. He then found her guilty and had her executed. Once she was executed, the mother uh, claimed herself to be the queen and that Herod was mentally unfit to serve as king over the region, and so he had her executed without a trial. There were two young sons that remained from his marriage to Mariamne, and as they grew older, King Herod considered them threats to his power. He sought to put them on trial for treason, but Emperor Augustus got involved and put a stop to it by ordering the son and father to reconcile. A few years after that, Herod found a workaround, outmaneuvered the Emperor. He demanded a sum of money, knowing that Emperor Augustus wanted to revitalize the Olympic Games, said, I will give you this money to revitalize the games if you'll lift the ban on executing my sons. And Augustus lifted the ban, accepted the money. The sons were executed, and Augustus was heard to say, I would rather be Herod's dog than Herod's son. But that's not the end of his story. After murdering his wife and his two sons, Herod named a son from another wife, his eldest son, Antipater, as the exclusive heir to the throne. Now watch this. He names this son, the eldest, as the exclusive heir to the throne. Once he establishes him as heir to the throne, he begins to be jealous of the crown prince and puts him on trial and has him executed. The emperor was so appalled that he refused to allow any of the other of Herod's sons to be called king, uh, though they eventually would rule as tetrarchs, each governing a third of the father's realm. Do you think a man who settled family disputes by executing wives and sons would hesitate for a minute in ending the lives of children under two years old in his region that he perceived as a threat because there was a king born in his region? Not at all. When your means of solving family disputes is execution... There's not much else that you wouldn't do. So I don't know about you. I would like to get rid of all of the Herod stories in my life. All those negatives, those things we don't want to look at, those things that are ugly, I'd like to eliminate all of those. Why should we keep Herod in our understanding? Well, I want to suggest you some reasons, but you're going to have to listen or You're going to misquote me or misunderstand the point I'm trying to make. All right? And so hang on and ride with me for a little bit. We need to keep Herod in the story. We can't throw him away because we need a villain to balance us. We need a villain to balance us. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in his vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. So you look at Herod and the Magi and the babies and all that's happening, and there's this ongoing theological debate, anthropological um, theological debate about the nature of man. And it shows up really often in this great bastion of all theological think tanks that we now call Facebook. (laughs) Is man basically good or is mankind basically evil? So we have this ongoing discussion that has to do with the nature of God and the nature of man and the nature of creation. Is mankind basically good or basically evil? I want to propose to you that it creates a false paradigm, that it's, that's a false dichotomy, and we need to relook at that. Mankind in Genesis has been stamped with the image of God. Not part of mankind and and stamped with the image of God and the other part not stamped with the image of God, nor does it tell us that when men failed, that the image of God was obliterated. Mankind is capable as being stamped with the image of God of some very noble deeds apart from faith. You can look at philanthropists. You can look at people who've done incredible things to be a blessing to the lives of others, feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, taking care of the needs of people around them that do it from a non-faith basis. Where does that come from? Where does that sense of wanting to do good and be good come from if it doesn't come from the stamping of the image of God on our lives? I told this, uh, use this first service, so I'll go ahead here a second. But how many of you have heard of Ellen DeGeneres? There isn't anyone probably in the media right now that is more generous than Ellen DeGeneres. She gives away stuff all the time. Huh? I mean, she gives away all kinds of stuff. Just loves giving things away. And I remember when Ellen DeGeneres first came out as a lesbian that Christians began to refer to as, as uh, Ellen Degenerate and laughed at that. And there's something wrong when we label someone degenerate and laugh at it. It shows our brokenness. Hello? So where does that come from? It doesn't come from a faith perspective. She's not an evangelical believer. Where does that come from? Where do these people get that sense of wanting to do good? Well, I believe it's because we are all stamped with the image of God. And there's something hardwired in us that feels good when we do good. So do you say then that mankind is basically good because there's something in us that wants to do good? I don't think that sufficiently answers the question. Because mankind tends toward evil. Everyone has an evil bent. We all fall short of the glory of God. Every child born into this world is born selfish and self-centered. And if you don't believe that, just serve in the promised land nursery for a week. <laughs> the most frequently used word in promised land by the small children is mine. Mine. Mine, 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 mine. And if you take it, then it is even more mine. It's mine because you have it. I want it to be mine. It's bow- Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And mankind is capable of horrific kinds of evil. Tyrants of the past, Hitler. Idi Amin in Uganda. Russian dictators, evil regimes. Nineveh, you say, well... Why was Jonah afraid to go to Nineveh? Because they did horrific things to their enemies. I'm not going to describe those, but I would challenge you to look up and unimaginable atrocities were committed against their enemies. The Bible tells us in Genesis that a time came that the thought of every man was only evil continually. And that doesn't mean they were just gossiping. They were doing horrific kinds of crimes. Look at what Christians did in the Crusades. Christians, Christians, uh, uh, committed awful horrific atrocities in the name of religion horrible things happened why is that possible if we've been stamped by the image of God because I think the question are we basically good or basically evil is not a fair question there's no real answer to that here's the answer we're all basically broken we're all broken. We were stamped by the image of God, but there's something in us that tends toward the darkness. And Paul captures it in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about this tension between wanting to do good and wanting to do evil, that tension that goes back and forth. There's something about us that also tends toward evil. And and in the Midwest, in our comfortable living, we try to surround ourselves with good people who do good things that are good neighbors and carpool together and help one another out and watch each other's house and we can forget how evil mankind has the capacity of becoming and begin to think we're all basically good. We need a villain to remind us what happens to mankind when there is no godly restraint. The message of the gospel goes to a world in great need And when we look around at our neighbors, oh, they're nice people, and we pat hands and we feel good about one another, our sense of the gospel can be eroded or diminished because we forget what happens when you take the gospel out of people's lives. What happens when there's no restraining force of the Spirit? What happens when there's no restraining voice of the church, when the church is not salt or light? You have ungodly regimes like communist Russia whose goal was to stamp out Christianity and look at the crimes against humanity that were committed by them because mankind is capable of horrific evil. Why do we bring the gospel message? It's because this world is a dangerous place without Jesus. We need to be reminded it gives us balance all we want to see are shepherds, angels, and wise men. But in every villain, we see the damaged image of God. I was listening to a debate just this week about the founding of our country. Is it time for us to move from a democratic republic to a pure democracy? And our founding fathers, in their wisdom and faith in God, recognized the danger there was in the fallen nature, and there's a reason why we're not a democracy. Here's what happens in a democracy... Democracy is the rule of the majority over the minority. It's used to oppress the minority. And this democratic republic that we're a part of is set up in such a way to protect us from ourselves. And I'm not entering into this as a political bait, a debate, but rather a theological one that left to ourselves and given mankind power, we will degrade, culture will degrade. There'll be a group that will rise up and oppress the other group, and there'll be disaster. That's why we need the gospel. Everybody in this world isn't like your next-door neighbor that mows your lawn when you're gone. Some of them are murdering people. Some of them are doing horrible atrocities in the church. We need to be reminded, especially here in the Midwest, that not everybody's a good person in the way they behave in the world that surrounds that making any sense to you at all why do we need the herod story because life is not all angels and shepherds and wise men it's all about herod as well and his armies and their evil that is loosed in the land and the battle that there is between good and evil we we need a villain to keep us in balance to remind us of what this world looks like when it separates its mooring from god left to itself Culture will always degrade. Second, I'd suggest to you that we need a tragedy to motivate us. <coughs> we need a tragedy to motivate us. Then, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Yes, we need a villain to remind us of what this world looks like without Christ, why we are here, what the role of the church is, what the gospel message is, but we also need to see tragedy to motivate us to do what God has called us to. This world's need should cause us to rise up with godly compassion for the brokenness of the world we live in the richest country on the planet the poorest of the poor here are richer than the rich in some other nations and we can become so insulated by our comfort that we become complacent and we don't recognize or fail to look at the problems that are going on in the world listen to me you can shut off Um, MSNBC you can shut off Fox you can shut off all the news but shutting it off doesn't mean the problems aren't happening the murders are still happening the tragedy is still happening and sometimes you need to force yourself to look at it so it breaks something open on the inside of you and you're moved with compassion as God intends us to be we can't even imagine what it's like to get up in the morning and your soul Your sole objective for the day is to find some drinking water. You spend all day and send the children and they find some muddy little pool and try to filter it through the sand and fill up little containers and bring it home. And they drink that and then they have cholera and dysentery and all kinds of disease because there isn't any There isn't any clean drinking water anywhere. I saw a video on that, and I turned on the faucet in my bathroom, and I wept that I'm not thankful enough for what I have, and I'm not aware enough of how broken and troubled this world really is. Look across the nation of Africa, and you'll see a pandemic of AIDS that is still destroying the lives of parents with children of AIDS that have nowhere to go. And we sit idly by. I'm telling you that there's, there are places in this world where there is no water, there is no food, there is no shelter, there is no clothing, there's no dental care, there's no health care, there's nothing available for them, no vaccines. We argue about vaccines, and I understand if you want to have that discussion, but go to places where they're dying because there is no medical help available whatsoever. We argue over how good it is, and there are places that don't have any. They don't have any. We need to see the world's brokenness a tragedy so it will motivate us. Natural disasters need our attention. When you see a community swamped by a tsunami or a hurricane, it's easy to just change the channel. But would you next time stay there long enough till it makes you cry? Till it begins to motivate you that there is something we need to do? Now listen to me, I am not in favor of benevolence without a gospel message. I'm not in favor of enabling people to continue in their sin. I'm not in favor of undoing the consequences of people's actions. But I am in favor of the church rising up and saying, we have an answer for you. We have a solution for you. And here's some water. Here's some food. Here's some clothing. And here's a message of Jesus Christ. And at least have the opportunity to pray for them we do that through convoy of hope we're doing that all over the world but i need to have that motivate me i need it to move in my heart i need it to change who i am we forget if we don't see the tragedy james chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food if one of you says to him go i wish you well keep warm and fed but doesn't nothing about his physical needs what good is it that faith must be lived out, it must be acted out. And again, I'm not suggesting that you take care of people who are being irresponsible. I believe in consequences for their actions. But why do we have to have the dichotomy between giving a fish and teaching to fish? If you give him a fish, he eats for a day. If you teach him to fish, he fishes for a lifetime. Well, I'm telling you, the church needs to give them a fish so their their belly is full, so they can learn how to fish, that both of those go together. And everywhere on the planet that the gospel is preached, the economy increases, the lifestyle increases, the world changes wherever the gospel message is preached. It changes the lives of men and women. We can argue about Matthew 25, the Olivet Discourse, and what it means, and the eschatological implications of the discussion. But can we just hear for a moment what the king said? And forget the eschatology and just listen to the heart. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Will you pause for a minute and look at the world's sorrow and feel their pain, empathize with them, because that's what Jesus expects us to do. We can wipe the slaughter of the innocents out of the story, but I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be sitting in your home with an 18-month boy when the soldiers storm the city and they take your child and before your eyes, they put him to death, not euthanizing him with a needle, but in the most horrific way, slaughtering that child before you. Will you look at the story till it makes you cry because we need to feel their pain and motivate us to go where they live. Is anybody hearing me this morning? we need to see the tragedy in order to motivate us complacency results from too much comfort the bible says in revelation chapter 3 to the church in laodicea you say i'm rich i've acquired wealth i do not need a thing but you don't realize that you're wretched pitiful poor blind and naked i counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich white Um, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. You think you're rich and you don't realize how poor you really are. And I'm not suggesting, please hear me, I don't want you to feel guilty because you've been blessed. I want you to feel responsible. If you ask me to give away all of my stuff and not take care of my family, I'm going to tell you where to go take a hike. I'm not going to participate in that. I'm going to bless my family. I'm going to take care of them. I am proud to be an American. I'm thankful for the country I live in. And I celebrate the blessings we have because we're still a missionary uh, nation that allows missionaries to be sent and the gospel to be preached. I don't want you to feel guilty, but I do want you to feel a sense of responsibility. Where's that line? And we won't move until we're melted we won't move till we see the tragedy till we see the struggle there is no change or mission without a sense of urgency I'm thankful (laughs) Uh, I really am thankful for what God has done here at Berean over the last 10 years how many of you are thankful but there's more to be done thank you there's much more to be done and when we got here there was no sense of urgency there was only brokenness you could talk about giving and people responding and no one would and you know what the primary problem one of the primary problems was there was over a million there's a million 300,000 in the bank it isn't there today <laughs> and I felt like God spoke to me and said as long as we have all of our needs met we're fat and lazy we won't do anything for the kingdom is anybody hearing me because not amassing wealth, it's ministering to need. And I remember this Sunday, God broke me. I was at general, general counsel, and I saw these children in this video, the long African day with nothing to drink and nothing to eat. And, and God said, you're sitting on a million dollars. What are you doing for the kingdom? And I came back and said, church, we are not sitting on this money. We're going to give this away. I'm going to give this away till you start giving. And if I give us into bankruptcy, I'll give us into bankruptcy. And that Sunday we committed $130,000 to missions. Just start giving it away. I think people believed me. Without urgency, there's no mission. Without a sense of need, there's no compassion. Complacency comes when we're too comfortable. And God didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to be committed, to be commissioned. Called us to make a difference in the world. And when you see their brokenness and let it break your heart, you'll begin to respond because compassion is a moving force. Matthew nine thirty six. when Jesus saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd In Matthew 14 14 Jesus landed saw a large crowd he had compassion on them and healed their sick You're going to see here a direct relationship between the miracle working power of God and compassion that was born in the heart of the Savior In Matthew 15 32 Jesus called the disciples and said I have compassion for these people They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them hungry or they may collapse along the way. Listen to me. If the heart of Jesus was moved over three days without food, how much do you think it's moved today with weeks without food and days without water? What's happening in the heart of Jesus today? Matthew 20, verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. That's the key. And followed him. Mark chapter 1, verse 41, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And again, in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began teaching them many things Things. I'm telling you that the heart of compassion is a heart that moves, and seeing the need is a biblical premise to motivate us. We have to quit isolating and insulating ourselves from the problems around us and look at them with an open eye and say, Jesus, what would you have us do? 2020 lays ahead of us as an open book. Whose life will be different because we touch them in 2020? What's our theme here? What's our mission here? It's extending hope and wholeness to broken humanity. When I first came to Des Moines, I'm not doing that now, there are reasons for that, but when I first came to Des Moines, I felt like God told me to exegete the community that we lived in. And I had an invitation to do chapel uh, once a month at Bethel Mission. (laughs) Oh, listen. Those guys are there, they're broken, and they know it. And some of them will stare you down. Some of them will spit in your eye. And others of them want to hear. And I thought, I felt like God spoke to me. If it won't work here at Bethel Mission, don't take it to the platform at Berean Church. Hello? If your gospel won't work here, don't proclaim it up there. Begin to hear their hearts and hear their stories. And that's why I'm so excited with those of you that come from a Bethel mission that come from the door of faith that come from the women's shelter and, and we've had a few graduation ceremonies downstairs with ladies from the women's shelter who have cut a whole new course of life and My wife will sit beside me and say, you got to say something. And so what happens is I stand up and bawl for a while and then finally get some words out because we're extending not just hope but hope and wholeness to broken humanity. That's who we are. It's what we need to be about. We need to see the need and respond to it with the love and grace and authority of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I thought we changed the model. Oh, no, we changed the marketing tool. We don't say to people, come to church, you broken pagans, so we can heal you. (laughs) What is the result of hope and wholeness? Here's the result of hope and wholeness that we appeal to people. When you experience hope and wholeness, we will be a place where singles find friends, where couples find fulfillment, and where... Families have fun. We will be that peace. That's our marketing strategy. But it only happens when broken lives meet Jesus and we share with them the good news. That's what this whole message is about. We need to see the tragedy so it will motivate us to respond. We need a villain to balance us, we need a tragedy to motivate us. And last, we need a fear to protect us. <laughs> Oh, please, don't even start. Don't start on me. I already hear the naysayers. Do you know what the Bible says about fear, Pastor? You know? As a matter of fact, I do. I know that fear has torment. I know that God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And when fear attacks my family or attacks my kids or attacks my life, I quote that verse and I chase that fear away. I don't know if you've experienced a child with night terrors and you can tell me all the psychological reasons they happen. I'll tell you how to cure them. Teach a child how to do spiritual warfare and when they wake up screaming, get it in their consciousness that they will quote back to that fear. God has not given me a spirit of fear. But of love, power, and a sound mind. And you'll watch that night terror go away because there's power in the Word of God. I've seen it. I believe it. Believe that it would be a great verse for you to memorize. Everybody repeat this out loud after me. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Memorize that. Yes, I'm not a proponent of fear. I do not believe that over the long haul, fear and faith can coexist. I know the Bible says that I will trust in the Lord and not be afraid, but that same psalm says, What times I am afraid, I will trust in the Lord. You have to link those together and understand. But here's what you have to grab hold of. Simply simply eliminating your fear doesn't mean that you're operating in faith. You could simply be operating in ignorant, presumptive denial. The goal is not to get rid of your fear. Your goal is to live in faith. Those are not the same. And there is a gift of the Spirit that we don't talk about very much called discerning of spirits. And we want to know if there's a devil in that bush when God wants us to identify the source of any manifestation through discerning of spirits. And when fear comes, you need to stop, examine it, and find out where it came from. If it came from the devil, you need to war against it. If it comes from your flesh, you need to war against it. But there are times that the voice of fear is the restraining voice of God. And you need to hear that. I have a friend who was in the first church we pastored, was driving out west for a vacation, planning to spend the night in Rapid City, South Dakota. Felt uncomfortable, felt like something was wrong stopped an hour short of that, went to a hotel, cheap motel in a cheap little town. And that's when the dam broke and that entire city was annihilated in that flood many years ago. Well, why didn't God protect the others? I don't know. God's plans are beyond mine. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that sense. I'm going to give you another story that I don't have the answer to, but for years, my dad lived in La Crescent, Minnesota. My mother lived in Albert Lee and uh, we would take the kids to the mega mall and we would use owatana as our hub so we'd go up there and see my mom and then go to the the cabelas and medford san owatana go up to the mega mall and then drive down and see my dad and drive on home we had done it many times and one particular night when we left my dad's place i can't explain it to you i'm driving across Um, southern uh, Minnesota and this sense of foreboding came all over me this fear came on me so I have a choice now I can rebuke the fear or I can say is this the voice of God warning me of something is anyone hearing me right now sometimes you rebuke that fear to your own demise now I can't tell you what happened I can't tell you what that was about I do not know I'm just going to tell you what I did I began to pray in tongues all the way across southern Minnesota Till we got to I-35 and turned to the south, and then I felt that spirit lift. I don't know. You say, it's your imagination. You're tired. I don't care what you say. All I know is that God protected us from something, and I'd rather say to you that God protected me from something I never saw than to tell you what would not have happened had I prayed. I'm just telling you. How does that fit in the story? Oh, let's watch it. The Bible says after Herod died, An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the young child's life are dead. right, stop, pause. What happened here? They're in Egypt. An angel of the Lord, speaking on behalf of God, said, get up and go back to Israel. Those who seek the young child's life are dead. Now here's what you've got to understand when you learn to cultivate a voice to hear the voice of the Spirit, you need to respond to what the Spirit says and not read into that. They're told to go back to Israel. So they get up and they go to Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Oh listen, he's got a word from God. Go back to Israel. And some of the positive confession people would say just speak it into existence build your little cabin next door to Archelaus he can't touch you he can't hurt you and just walk boldly in there no the fear that he felt was the spirit of God saying you got back to Israel but there's a danger here and I need you to listen to my voice When he paused out of fear over archelaus then god gave him a dream and confirmed that his fear was from god and said i want you to go to nazareth (laughs) that was a word from god there are times in your life that you'll feel i don't care what you call it a check a sense of foreboding something's not right Something's wrong here. Please don't ignore that. Discern it. Is it coming from the devil? Then get rid of it. Is it coming from you? Then don't put up with it. But there are times that that voice is a voice from God saying, Stop! You're going further than I told you to go. You're going without direction from me. And the path you're on will certainly end in destruction. And when you respond to that and learn to hear his voice, he will confirm it and order your steps. Sometimes fear should be listened to. God told Joseph that Herod was dead. God told Joseph to return to Israel. God told Joseph that those who wanted to kill Jesus were dead. He did not tell him about Archelaus. But when he sensed something was wrong, then God confirmed the word because Joseph needs to learn how to be led by the voice of, of the Spirit of God. It might be fear, and it might be a warning voice of the Spirit of God. If we eliminate all the Herods of our lives, we will suffer for it. God's voice is sometimes in the events and news that seem negative to us, but I've got a promise for you that if you will take care of God's voice in you, God will take care of Herod, and God will take care of you. When I left the service this morning... Pastor Bill, and I don't know if he's doing other things or he's in here, but Pastor Bill came to me and he said, there's something about that song, the Coventry Carol, that you may not be aware of. So I went back to my office and researched. I'm going to give you information I didn't have during first service. The Coventry Carol is written in G minor. Its root chords are G, B flat, D, if that means anything to you in music, but that's what gives it that heavy, oppressive, negative sound. The text evokes deep pain and sorrow, but there is within the song a message of good news. At the melody's end, um, the end of the song ends with a major chord, and if you listen to that, all the darkness for a moment brightened. Instead of G, B flat, D, it goes to a G, B, D, which is a major chord, which music theory calls a Picardy third British musicologist Derek Cook best describes the Picardy Third this way, a device of Western Renaissance music that was a happy ending chord or what has become known as the hope chord. (laughs) All the way through, whoever wrote that song, weeping may endure for the night, but it's not the end of the story This one chord in this carol communicates the eternal hope of these women for their children and the truth of God's good news. Thus says the Lord, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. This disaster will not be the end. It will not have the final say. This child Jesus is a warrior who gives victory, will renew you in his love, will exalt over you with loud singing on a day of festivals, Zephaniah 3.17, because resurrection day is coming. In minor court is not the final answer. There's a hope court at the end that we look to the future. There is an answer in him. The story is not finished by Herod. It's finished. When Jesus hangs on a cross and declares it to be so. Pastor Nathan, if you would come. Here's what I want us to do I want us to take a moment just to let Jesus saturate you. So if you would stand with me with every head bowed, every eye closed, just for a moment. I just want to know this morning if there's a Herod in your life that right now you don't understand. You would like God to just put him away, just eliminate him, throw him into the sea. Could be your job, could be a family matter, could be all kinds of things. It's one that you don't understand. Listen, I believe this to be true. God works all things together for good to them that love him. And with heads bowed right now and eyes closed, you would just say, Pastor, pray for me. There's a Herod in my life that I don't understand. And I need the wisdom of God to deal with it. Hold up your hands. Hands going up all over the place. Jesus, you see the hands that are raised. We refuse to let let Herod dominate us. Give us wisdom. Give us wisdom on how to move forward. We're going to end with a hope chord. Thank you, Jesus.
2: Can't go back to the beginning. Control but tomorrow.
0: Voice in our world. Sometimes we need a villain to balance us. We need a tragedy to motivate us, a fear to protect us in all things, believing that he is in charge. He is in charge. Herod will not win. I pray that in the year ahead of us, you will help us understand that it is sometimes in the negatives that you have the strongest word for us. Help us not insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves from the needs of the world around us. Saturate ourselves with your Spirit, with a heart that's moved in the same way that your heart is moved. Give us your insights and your discernment. Ask in Jesus' name. And everyone that loves him said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. Greet someone. Be an encouragement to someone today, would you? Just bless them in Jesus' name. Remember, no service tonight, no service Wednesday.